You are listening to The Real Faith Stories Podcast, interviews with people who chose to boldly follow their faith. I'm your host, Brian Robinson. Now, let's meet our guest and hear their story. Dr. Craig Thayer, welcome to Real Faith Stories. It's really great to have you on the program. It's an honor, Brian. Thank you for having me. Well, your background as a trauma surgeon is really unique. And I just finished reading most of your book called Saved. And what's the subtitle? One Trauma Surgeon's True Accounts of Miracles in His Life. There were just so many different things from the time you were born up until literally right now that God has been doing through you and around you. So what I'd love to have you do, please, is share some of your backstory first And then let's dig into some of these stories. And I do have some very pointed questions I'd like to ask as we go forward. Sounds great. Well, it's funny because I go on medical mission trips to Honduras and I went to Haiti almost a year after the earthquake. And, you know, we would gather in the group and people would give their testimonies. And I would always think if I'm asked, I'll begin with being raised Christian as mandatory because I was an orphan. But the reality was looking back, I realized, you know what, it began before that because my mom was in Michigan. She was engaged and she started to show six months out and the church would have shunned her for showing because she wasn't married yet. And so she moved to California for three months in Monterey and had me, held me for three days and then the courage to give me up. There was not foster care then, so I was in an orphanage. And nine months later, I got adopted by a mom who grew up in Ireland, went through the World War II which I wish she were still around to tell me about. She moved over when she was 21 and then married my dad. They couldn't have kids, so they adopted me. And I grew up in this, I mean, it wasn't a perfect family. She made me an empath by having an alcohol problem. Mm. And I went to my first AA meeting when I was 11 with her. And then just growing up in high school, tutoring uh, two blind students in geometry, I knew I loved to help people. You tutored two blind students in geometry. In geometry, exactly. So <laughs> so I have to begin to think outside the box, right? And if you're yeah. an empath, you do that automatically. Like, what are they thinking about to make them react this way, right? So, or in this case, how do I teach them? They learn kinesthetically. They learn by touch and feel. So they trace a circle or I bring in a tennis ball for a sphere or a pyramid for that shape. And then most of the other stuff they could understand mentally. And then that same year, I took an anatomy physiology class, and I'm like, the human body is amazing. I wrote a paper on the eye that I got 110 out of 100. Now, looking back, it's when you look back, you can see these miracles, these steps that God entered in your life and directed you. Darwin wrote a book called Evolution of Species, and he had three things he couldn't explain, and the eye was one of those. There was no evolution of the eye. So it's interesting that I wrote about it. And then I wanted to be a surgeon because I like working with my hands. I I had a calling at the age of 16 that I wanted to be a surgeon and I was cocky back then. So I thought cardiothoracic, you know, heart stuff Mm -hmm. or neuro. But then when I got into med school, I realized that those were not the biggest challenging ones. General surgery was. So there was an experience at a VA where a patient basically drowned from a lung cancer that started to bleed. And the internist couldn't put a tube in his trachea. And the surgical resident was in the operating room. So I'm like, I never want to be caught in a position where I can't save someone's life. So general surgery was that back then. You learned neurotrauma. You learned, you know, I can open a chest and put a finger in a heart to close the hole and then get to the operating room and fix it with a stitch. And then just 
normal stuff like breast cancer, colon cancer, things that you get to see people more than just in the hospital and then a couple of times afterwards. And then there were experiences in my life, my junior year, that was very impactful. I had a twisted intestine and lost like 20 to 30 pounds in one night. And and that I'd already decided I wanted to be a surgeon. So, but it, it definitely influenced me that this is something I want to do is work with my hands. And then craziness of my college, you know, freshman year, last quarter, I get a call in the middle of the night. It's my dad. Don't know how to tell you this. Don't know how to tell you this. And your mom's passed away. She had a heart attack in her sleep. And sophomore year, I was coming back from bacteriology class and came around a corner on the wrong side of the road. My my fault. Almost hit this girl, jackknifed my wheel, went down to the pavement and went over and made sure she was okay. The next thing I knew, I was sitting on a curb and I'm like, with an ambulance in front of me and what happened? And they took me to the health center and I had a laceration in my ear. They stitched and they sent me home and I'm studying for a bacteriology midterm and there's this fluid coming out of my ear and I can't hear her. And so I call and the, it was some grad student. I'm like, is this okay? He goes, I don't know. What do you think? So <laughs> made, made, made an appointment the next day after my bacteriology midterm to go in and they x-rayed my skull and sure enough, I cracked it. And that was spinal fluid coming out of my ear. So oh man, to keep me from getting meningitis, I was in for two weeks of a quarter. So quarters are 10 weeks. So that's 20%. And usually you have a midterm by two and a half weeks. So I did. I got out half week later. I've got a midterm that I've had no lecture to. I've had to study reading the book. And I got through that quarter. I had 18 units. I think I dropped two and then finished. And if I hadn't have finished, I would have been off series, which means I wouldn't have graduated in four years. So, man. And then junior year, my dad gets diagnosed with lung cancer. He dies between my junior and senior year. And I still finished you know, my four years and just getting into med school. I mean, the grace of God was, you know, I applied to 18 schools. I got 17 that just, hey, thank you for applying. We've rejected you. I think I could have wallpapered a wall with those. <laughs> and then I got one that was thin from UC Davis that said, congratulations, you've been denied admission. I'm like, what? But then it said I was on a wait list. So, and that's a funny story because I answered the phone thinking in the summer, like, four weeks before the next quarter would begin. And it was someone from UC Davis Medical School, but I answered it thinking it was my roommate looking for a ride home, Craig's Taxi Service. You get a call from UC Davis, unbeknownst to you, that yeah. you've been accepted to the medical school and you thought it was a buddy and you answer it what way? Right, yeah, Craig's Taxi Service. And she goes, is Craig there there? So I said, yes, it's the second. I covered the phone and I wait about probably 20 seconds and that's it, same voice, no change. Yeah, this is Craig. Oh, by the way, congratulations, you've been accepted. I'm like, she must have just shaken her head like, what an idiot. <laughs> Let me pause there for a moment, Craig. As you as you step back, I mean, you've shared a lot of experiences, a lot of challenges thus far. As you survey your life, what would you see as one of the most defining moments? Does anything spring to mind? I'm just curious. I think I would look back. I played water polo in high school and college. Our high school water polo team junior year also went to Hawaii, and we're on a bus coming back from the University of Hawaii after a game with one of my teammates, and there's this father who's just crying his eyes out. He's got his wallet in his hand, looking at some pictures. I go sit next to him, and his wife has kicked him out of the house. He's drunk, and God's very purposeful. And he taught me by going to AA what to do and what to say and how to feel what he was going through. And he got off the bus with us and we 
called AA because he was intoxicated. They wouldn't wouldn't take him. Called the church, same thing. They wouldn't take him. Uh, a police officer came over and you know asked what we were doing. Are we okay? Talked to the guy. Had two daughters that were just beautiful little kids. And the officer said, "Don't give him any money. He's just going to go to a bar." But we still did because he needed something. And you never know what that ripple is. But it taught me that now looking back again, my mom and dad really did teach me to be an empath and a healer and someone that teaches, I would say, my three gifts. And and they were used. I think that was a pivotal moment. Again, I don't know what the ripple of that was, and I don't need to know. But Mm -hmm. one of my prayers is that when I do pass, that I get to see all the connections that I've been part of in my life. That would really be a beautiful thing. What questions are you asked most often? Uh, I think people are, are afraid. I mean, they're coming into a surgeon's office, right? Mm-hmm. And fear is either knowing too much or not enough. And some people already know their diagnosis. It's interesting. So I can have someone that has a set of symptoms, weight loss, night sweats, a bunch of stuff, and they've had it for a year or two, and they just don't know what it is, and they're afraid it's the worst. And, and even when you do find out that it's a, a bad cancer, they're relieved because now they know what's going on. So I think it's understanding that Patients are human. They're just like me. They need to know what's going on. You need to be completely transparent. Give them as much information as they want. Mostly some of the older people don't want to know about the surgery, how it's done, what the complications are. They just have faith in you, which is amazing because I can see people a couple of times and they've got a gigantic abdominal aortic aneurysm that's got like a 20% mortality from the surgery. And trust me, after two visits, this is crazy. What question are you asked most often with respect to life and things you've learned? I think it's transparency. I mean, general surgery, you lose people sometimes, or it's trauma. You know, I've trained at the busiest blunt trauma center in the United States at UC Davis. And being real with people and understanding, and as a physician, there's power in in touch and a hug. And it's okay to break down. I mean, I had a judge that had a ruptured aneurysm and his three daughters and his significant other and his ex-wife and being honest with them every day. Communication, I think. People just want to be involved and know what's going on. And I think being honest and transparent is the most important thing. When you're sitting in a room with a family and their loved one has passed, you and the staff have done all you can do to save their life because of a trauma. What is it that you see most often in terms of responses and Maybe a universal question they ask if there is one. So I summarize what happened over the last period of time. Tell them what happened and how it happened. And the classic, every single doctor show you see, we did everything we could. And this is what happened. People, even paramedics, they need closure. So they need to hear how you did it, what you did. And then for me, especially with the judge, because he was there for almost three months and the bonding with the family, and there's an emotional response that it's okay as a physician to have. I cried with them. So I think the response with them, because I'd communicated was, thank God that he's he's passing because he hadn't passed yet in that conversation. Or the harder ones are like this, the sudden impact. So like in residency, a, a daughter had been transferred from an outside city to Sacramento, big head injury, and uh, a room full of people, I mean, probably 60 people. And the father is standing right in front of me, kind of a waiting area. And I said, your daughter is by CT scan and final exam. She's brain dead. His response was, he just 
broke down and dove onto a couch that was behind him. And there are some other people that have called a Spock response, so very logical, but they're half human, so there's just a delay. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, okay, they're gone. And then about 15 seconds later, it suddenly hits them like a wave, and they just break down. And I think you know that's where, if they're close or whatever, I'll touch them in some way and reassure them that, you know. And in medicine, it's, it's difficult. I mean, I've had recovery room nurses ask, how can you be a scientist and a believer? And I'm like, that's easy. God created, and we study it. That's science. 99.9% of astrophysicists and cosmologists believe in the Big Bang Theory. So even Hawking in his two books, Brief History and Briefer History of the Universe, he gets to that point and says, if there's a time zero, then we don't know what began before that or what was. And that's a philosophical question. We won't go there. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's easy to believe and have faith. The difference is Faith can't be proven, right? That's that's the conundrum. Yeah. And science is supposed to be completely based on fact. And really, it's not. I mean, Einstein had four assumptions in his relative theory. So assumptions are, are a leap of faith. And circling back on the experiences you've had with families, could you tell a huge difference between those that had faith in the Lord and those who did not in their responses to what you shared with them? Yes, absolutely. What were the differences that, that you noticed? There's two things. One, I put up posters, they're collages of the medical mission trips that I've gone on, and it opens doors in the exam room for people to ask questions, and then I find out that they have faith. And so I can talk openly about Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, Bible, everything. And then there's others that don't ask questions or I don't know. So not to offend anybody, people have different faiths. So, and I don't judge if you don't have Christianity that I wish you did, but that's okay. C.S. Lewis says, Get out of your room, which is, you know, the room of Christianity, and walk in the hallway or even get in some other rooms and talk to other people what they believe and how they feel. And we're all human. But yeah, definitely, they have a much more of a comfort just knowing. And I can say, like, they're in a better place. Because the conundrum for me is, because it was an interesting conversation with a patient. He had an aortic aneurysm, and I had talked about the percentage of mortality. He goes, well, that's okay. You know, it's in God's hands. I'm like, well... A lot of people don't think that it's in my hands, right? And it is, you know, <laughs> God, God will test me. He's, he's standing right behind me watching what I do. He knows what I'm going to do before I do it, but he also knows he's going to give me the reins back to take over what my hands just created to fix whatever happened. I had a profound case like that where this dad had rolled his car into the Sacramento river. He had four daughters, two twins, one had a femur fracture. The, the miracles in that case are profound it was like in an area where there was no ambulances one had just passed by that was a high water search and rescue team there was a kayaker on a rainy day who witnessed it made sure the guy was okay he was hanging by his seatbelt so he didn't drown all the kids were standing on top of the car he ran up to the top a chp guy just happened to be driving by to alert everybody he comes in he's got a drop lung actually both of them are dropped he's got a ruptured spleen. He's on a blood thinner because he's got a weird genetic problem called Leydig factor and a head injury. He's got a broken pelvis, an open femur fracture. He's he's a mess. Mm-hmm. And we get him off to the operating room, take out his spleen. He recovers. But there's a point after the surgery, I'm like, you know, this guy had probably 30 miracles to get him here to this point. God, you've got this. You're purposeful. I can take my hands off the reins. Literally two seconds after I thought that, Pager goes off, phone goes off, 
He's fighting the ventilator. Blood pressure's drop. Okay, God, you handed me back the reins. Thank you very much. And a nine gravitational dive, nose dive. And I get it. it. You are purposeful, but you do want me to be part of this. And, you know, faith is a verb. So you want me to act. I'm just processing as you're sharing this. And I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of my experience in the OR with surgeons when I was with Johnson & Johnson. Yes, yes. And I'm curious, as you've had situations where you felt like, rationally, this is what I need to do, but have you ever felt hijacked, so to speak, by the Lord, and just a higher level of understanding came to you, and you're like, no, I, I need to do this, or your hands are almost moved by him to do why when you thought of doing X. Has that ever happened? Yeah. I think, if again, if you don't listen, you can't hear. And if you don't look, you can't see. So there's a story in the book. We're in Telehonduras at a hospital. So it's at the Atlantic coast and not uh, further in, which is Copan, where we normally go. And I won't describe all the miracles, but the surgical part of that was, I'm going to do a laparoscopic gallbladder. So I need to put a, a special needle into the abdomen, inflate to a pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. They have a gigantic, like acetylene torch looking CO2 tank. For those that don't know, you blow the belly up with CO2 so you can get access with your camera. Right. So I can see, yeah. Their surgeon, who looks like a high school student almost, is there to see how I do it. And I don't know how well trained he is, so I'm not going to insult him by anything, but it it was clear by just the setup of this procedure that he's never done one. If he has, it's been maybe once because he didn't know how to hook up the cautery, which is to stop bleeding. You need suction to an irrigation. Literally, it had kind of one of the very early, what's called insufflator. So the device that monitors the pressure of the abdomen so it's not too high or too low. It monitors the flow of the gas. And it said zero, and it said the tank was out of gas. And I look over at the dial on the tank, and it says zero pressure. And I literally just, I prayed to myself, and I was at 12 millimeters of mercury. I needed 15. I look up, it's at 15. <laughs> and I think, okay, well, I'll continue. There's going to be a point where I'm going to have to suction, and then it's going to have to refill. So it's got to come up with more gas. And I never thought about it again. And I did an hour and a half surgery. The circulating nurse who was Honduran walked over to the tank at the end and said, there's no way you could have done this. This tank is empty. And I'm like, you're right. And I turned around to look at the clock to see how long it took me. And the clock, which I took a picture of and is in the book, is is stopped at seven after seven o'clock. And it was the seventh day of the month, the seven, 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 <laughs> which is God's completion number. Yeah. Right. The seventh day he rested. And I definitely rested after that surgery because it was an hour and a half. Usually it takes like 20 to 30 minutes to do. And she is like, these people struggle with their disease. They're kind of like neglected medicine. So they have attack after attack for 20 years, and it's just a scarred little gallbladder. It heaves to a bunch of things it's not supposed to be stuck to. And yeah, it's not an easy surgery. Bottom line is God literally filled that abdomen with CO2 right. from an empty tank. Yeah. And, and before that, I mean, the story began before that. It was like, I, when I go to Copan, I have a good friend of mine who's a EMT. And he would assist. And I brought him to the hospital a couple of times. And I realized as we walked in and then out, that circulating nurse was proctoring us. He was watching us like a dog. And I realized I need a real scrub nurse. And I never ask for staff. I never encourage people to come that I know I could use. I just show up. And Leah was there. And I go, what do you do? She says, 
oh, well, I'm a scrub nurse for cardiothoracic surgeons. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, I need you. This will not go on without you because someone's got to go in there and know how to sterilize, put up the drapes, put all the sterile instruments out and prep and drape. I look at Jason, I go, not that you couldn't, but you've never done that. And he had this panic look on his face like, thank God someone else is knowing, knows how to do this because <laughs> he was scared to death. She started to cry because she's never realized that she is part of a team and I can't do any of these things without housekeeping, the people who clean the instruments, sterilize them, the crew that take care of the room. If there's lab involved, if there's you know anesthesia, obviously people in the room are essential, but I can't do it without those. And so she'd never realized that. What an amazing awakening to see your value in that way, isn't it? Yeah, totally. What question do you wish people would ask you? That's a great question. I, I think one of them is what the recovery room nurses have asked me and other nurses is that how can you believe when you're a scientist and you're based on fact and evidence? I think that's a great one. How can you use your gifts? I think that's the inspiration I think I can bring to people. It's like, know what those are, figure them out, and then create something in your life that brings a passion for you to do. And for me, I had a passion to help people. And it's easy to use healing, empathy, and teaching with those things. And it's interesting. I think with having moved to Georgia, I, I'm using the same gifts, but being called in a different direction. And that's just to get out and speak to people about these miracles and inspire them. Yeah, there is a God. He still exists. I mean, there's a lot of people that think that miracles don't exist anymore. And they, they're just currently going on. Tell me how people can find out more about you, Craig. I think the easiest way, I'm on all the social medias, but you can find those links too on my website, which is just craigthayer.net. And you can see what I'm doing, where I've been, all the links, a uh, link to Amazon to get the book if you want to get the book. I did do uh, an Audible recently, which I, I did a Facebook survey. And at the very beginning of the book, I mentioned that I learned about eight years ago because my youngest son has dyslexia that I have dyslexia and I take multiple tests every year. And somehow I've never thought of it. I just knew I read slow and that was evident in third grade. But part of that survey was, should I do it myself? And I did. So poor Chip Davis, who was my coach, got me through it and it's out there. It's on Audible and a bunch of other the Audible platforms. That's just a mind blow that you didn't know you were dyslexic until your mid fifties. No, there are two third grade classes, walk into a dark room, and there's this like teleprompter and it's like, you know, it's like Star Wars, the beginning where you have to read the, in a land far away, blah, blah, blah. I can't read that quick. So I have to pause these movies and I hate foreign films because they have subtitles. And, <laughs> oh, okay. I missed that one. I can't watch the movie. I'm reading subtitles. So yeah. So I just fumbled, missed lines, went backwards, mispronounced, did all the things that you do when you have dyslexia and then testing him. Those are all the same symptoms he was having. And somehow I've just powered through it. Wow. It's mind-blowing, really, to think of where God has placed you in the midst of that challenge on top of all the other challenges yeah, you faced. Yeah, yeah. Your message is live life to the fullest because we don't right. know when we're going to be called home. What would you say to somebody who's struggling with the passion to live life to the fullest? What would be your advice to them? And then I'll ask you to pray, please. Don't give up. Don't give up. The harder the trial the bigger the outcome at the end. Just don't give up. That's great. Let's finish by having you pray for our listeners. Thanks. Dear God, thank you for this time with Brian. Thank you for this ability to reach out to people. Those people who are listening to this, please know that 
you're just like me. I mean, we all bleed the same. We all want to belong. We, we all want to have kindness in our world, especially now. Just know that you are a child of God. You've been created in a perfect image. We have sin, but that's our trial, right? So let us use those gifts to serve and not be served and see what happens. Look at the Holy Spirit that gets fired up in you when you buy the coffee for the person behind you at Starbucks or just being kind to people, opening a door. Let us be that light for other people to ask what it is that you have that they want so that they feel empowered and happy and in peace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Craig, thank you so much for being on the program. I appreciate your story. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for everything. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Please make sure you subscribe to the show and share this with someone you believe would be encouraged and motivated by these stories. Until next time, I'm Brian Robinson reminding you that the greatest decision you could ever make is to ask Jesus Christ to become the Lord of your life. If you haven't done that, read Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.